Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for a Tuesday edition of our podcast. I can't tell you what a treat this is for me today. Y'all know how cynical I am. Y'all know how jaded I am. But the the guest today kind of makes me suspend all of my cynicism and all of my jadedness. She's one of the most accomplished people, frankly, of my generation. Uh, she doesn't need an introduction, but I think I'm going to remind you anyway Um Right now, she's the director of the Hoover Institution. Before that, she was the secretary of state for the United States of America. She was a national security advisor. She was a provost at Stanford University. She wanted to be a concert pianist, but God smiled on her and gave her the greatest job in the world, which was and is and forever will be a member of the college football selection committee. Welcome, Dr. Condoleezza Rice. How are you? It is great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. I know as you reflect back on your career, some people might argue being Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, would outrank picking which teams are in the playoffs. How do you rank them? Because that to me is the dream job. Well, I just have to say, you know, my dad was a football coach when I was born. I was supposed to be his all-American linebacker, <laughs> and um, I'm an only child, so he taught me all about the sport. And I have said many times that when I, when they uh, asked me to be on the CFP selection committee, my father, who's gone to the Lord, but he probably thought, oh, good, she finally got a really important <laughs> job now. So uh, that was really a superb experience. I just have to tell folks that because uh, it's still going on, those committees are still meeting. You will not find a harder working committee. You will not find a committee that understands what a trust it is uh, for every football fan out there to believe that the committee is doing its very best. And it was really it was a fantastic experience for me. You know, that seems like a job that rewards fairness, which is why I would never make it because I know you're from Alabama. You may agree with this. You may not agree with this, but you're way too diplomatic to say one way or the other. I was trying to make an argument last year that Alabama should be one of the final four teams, even even though they didn't play in the SEC championship. And everybody was making fun of me and laughing at me. So I would not have, I mean, I think my bias maybe towards the SEC would have kept me off that committee you served on. Well, I think you would have had to leave your biases at the door. Trey. So uh, there's a little cap that they gave every one of us that just had our names on it. No insignia. And the idea was that when you walk in that room, you leave whatever loyalties you have to a conference or to a school behind. And I can tell you, people in that committee were actually tougher on their own conferences 
than they were on other conferences. And uh, we also had the the fact that if you were associated with the university, you had to be recused when that university was discussed. So as you know, I'm a professor at Stanford. And uh, so I had to leave the room whenever Stanford was discussed. So you might have had to leave the room when Alabama was discussed. Well, I wouldn't have had to leave the room because my beloved South Carolina Gamecocks would not have been discussed. We were not in the discussion. I I, I was not going to say that, but that was a subtle (laughs) reference to exactly that. Oh, you're right. Speaking of Stanford, I sit there, you know, May is kind of a little bit of a down sports uh, month, at least of the sports that I love. And then I discovered NCAA men's and women's golf championships, and they are mesmerizing. And I'm watching, of course, you mentioned Stanford, both their men's and women's teams are so good. But there you are, I I think, at the women's championship. Right. That's correct. Is that, I mean, I know you love golf, but you're also a busy person. And that's in what, Arizona? Is that at Greyhawk where they play that? It was at Greyhawk that they played. That's right. And uh, so I am officially the faculty, uh, the, the faculty fellow for the Stanford women's golf team. So I'm I'm lining up a lot of important jobs. I just want you to understand, you know, so um, we had a we've had a great team and we have a wonderful coach in Ann Walker. And uh, these young women are so wonderful to watch on the on the course, but also in the classroom. Um, And so I just uh, I marvel at what they achieve, because, as you know, uh, with golfers, they travel a lot. They have to play in a lot of tournaments, not just NCAA tournaments, uh, but uh, for the women uh, with the the uh, Curtis Cup, which is the uh, women's equivalent of uh, the Walker Cup. It's an amateur nation to nation competition. And yet they managed to do really well in the classroom, too. And I got to be there for Rose Zhang, who is right now uh, doing a great job on the LPGA. Um, and I even had a couple of uh, Trey, I even had a couple of uh, advisees. And I just want to tell you about one of them because it speaks to something that we don't always see. Young people are getting a a lot of flack these days. You know, they're lazy, they're entitled. Well, there's a woman at Stanford named Rachel Heck, and she won the NCAAs a couple of years ago. But do you know what her proudest thing is? She's ROTC. And she went down to San Jose State every a week to train in ROTC. People kept telling her she couldn't do the academics at Stanford and play golf and do ROTC, but her dream has been to be an Air Force officer. Now, how good is that? And uh, I just, I want to say there are a lot of young people who really care about this country, who really care about its future, and uh, they inspire me um, every day. If I have this right, Dr. Rice, she also just had a surgical procedure done And I've never seen, I don't think, anyone in match play more gracious or, I don't want to say not anyone, but it is rare to see that level of graciousness. She made it pretty far in the U.S. Women's Amateur, but her demeanor never changes whether she's winning a match or losing a match. And That's right. As a golfer, I wish I could say that about my own demeanor, don't you? Uh, well, I, I have not been kicked off. I have not been kicked off any courses. I don't break clubs anymore because I can't afford to have them repaired. But <laughs> I have a lot of self-hatred in my mind as I talk to myself when I'm playing. I want to combine two of your areas of expertise golf 
and international relations, our allies. We have the Solheim Cup coming up and we have the Ryder Cup. Yes. Any chance you'll go to either one? I'm sure you'll watch them both, but that's an exciting time. Both of them are coming up back to back. They are. And I wish I could be there. I won't be there because uh, it's tough to travel during this time with the university uh, in full in full bloom during this time. So I won't be there. But I will tell you that in 2018, I got a chance to be a member of the Celebrity Ryder Cup team wow. that played in Paris. And uh, we won, by the way, that uh, at uh, in Paris, uh, that team had on it uh, Michael Phelps and John McEnroe and Nick Jonas and oh. uh, Kelly Slater. So that was a real high point of my golfing career was to be part of the Celebrity Ryder Cup team. There's nothing better than uh, the Solheim Cup and the Ryder Cup. Uh, you know, these these folks who, as you know, golf is a very individual sport and you're playing the course, not your opponent. But in the Ryder Cup, uh, I've been told in the Solheim Cup, you get to be part of a team and uh, you get to be a part of a team representing your country. And even in my little experience with it, when we played on that celebrity team, I remember um, as I was over a putt and would make it or not make it, it would leave and they would say United States of America, three, Europe, four, the United States. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I just made that putt for the United States of America. Yes. So oh. I think it's pretty special. Uh, I can't imagine. I mean, I am stunned. You, you see these these guys and gals that seem so unflappable. They say the most nervous they have ever been is, ironically enough, playing for their country. We're going to take a quick break. More of our conversation with Dr. Condoleezza Rice is next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, I want to do this because I, I, I could talk about golf for uh, for the rest of the time with you. And I could talk about NCAA expansion and the fact that Stanford's now going to be in the same conference with Duke and North Carolina and Clemson. But... I would be uh, not doing a favor for my listeners to not ask as Dr. Condoleezza Rice surveys the world in 2023. Tell us through your eyes where your eyes go. What are you looking for? What should we be looking for? I would start by saying um, what I've been telling people. So I was the young Soviet specialist for George H.W. Bush at the end of the Cold War, 1989 to 1991. And then I was the national security advisor on September 11th, the 22nd uh, anniversary of which we've just commemorated. And I've still never seen anything as chaotic as the world we're facing today. And um, I would say that there are a couple reasons for that. One is it's an issue of great power rivalry for the first time in a long, long time. And when great powers are throwing their weight around, it's different than even the non-state actors that we worried about in the war on terror. And so you have uh, obviously what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, trying to extinguish a smaller neighbor. And we, we just can't live in a world in which a big country decides it's going to extinguish its its uh, its neighbor. And that's why what we're doing to support Ukraine is so critical. We do not want to live in a world in which Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are on their victory tour 
after Ukraine has been defeated. So I would just say to all my uh, my my fellow um, people out there who are interested in politics, to my fellow citizens, I would say when people say we don't have a dog in this fight, this isn't important in Ukraine. This is critical in Ukraine to the future of a world in which you want to raise your children and your grandchildren. Then we have, of course, the conflict and the uh, the challenge of China, uh, a country that we uh, tried to bring into the international system. We invited them into the international economy and they've turned the advantages of having been a part of that international economy into a stronger military to challenge us in the uh, Indo-Pacific into uh, a challenge to our technological uh, supremacy. And so we have to meet that challenge too. So the great power rivalry is one of the, the big pieces of it. The other is this, this incredible technology that is emerging, whether it's AI. Uh, you know how it is, Trey. Everybody in Washington now has learned to spell AI. <laughs> but I would say, let's let's try to understand how transformational and fundamental this technology could be for good or for bad. We have technologies like synthetic biology. Um, a friend of mine who teaches um, bioengineering here at Stanford will tell you, we will be able to engineer the basic unit of life, which is the cell. Think about the ethical issues that that raises. So this technology is another thing that I watch very carefully. And then finally, you asked me about the world, but let me just say the United States of America is an extraordinary place. We will meet these challenges if we can meet the challenge at home of not tearing ourselves apart, not going into our little tribes, not going into our echo chambers where we only listen to people who think like we think. Uh, we really need to, as the United States of America, remember what really has made us great. And that is that we, in this great democracy, um, even though we are very individualistic, we are also really communitarian. We care about each other. And that's got to go back at the center of who we are. That is so well said. I I, um, I don't I don't do any political speeches anymore. I, I never was that good at them. I didn't enjoy them. I do speak on unity and the power of pursuing an unlikely friendship or an unlikely relationship. I, I Dr. Rice, have never learned anything from someone who doesn't know more than I do. And, and it's hard to learn from someone who doesn't have a different vantage point than you do. So I don't want anybody to surrender a deeply held or lightly held conviction, but uh, just entertain the remote possibility there may be more than one way of looking at something and have a little a little grace. Here's something that's vexed me. I have to I have a, a, a gallery of rogues when it comes to uh, some of my peers and my friends. They include Mike Pompeo and John Ratcliffe and Robert O'Brien. And I am fascinated that Robert O'Brien was a hostage negotiator. And so when you Mike Pompeo, of course, was secretary of state, John Lee Ratcliffe was the director of national intelligence. When you have Americans being held by other countries, and I don't want to talk about any specific fact pattern, but just the awesome weight and responsibility of how you negotiate for someone's release. What are some of the things that maybe we miss having not been part of that? 
the the United States of America is uh, extraordinary in which we value every citizen and understand that uh, we as the United States need to defend every citizen. I always tell my students, if you look on your passport, and I want any American to look on that passport, it says basically that the Secretary of State asks every other country to respect and keep safe uh, Americans. There's a little statement on that passport. And so uh, we do have an obligation uh, when Americans are in danger, when they're in captivity, uh, to do everything that we can to recover them. We also have to recognize that we don't want to do things that might make it even more, a uh, greater incentive for more Americans to be taken. And so that's the balancing act. How do I negotiate? And I've, I've talked to Robert about this, who, by the way, is a remarkable person and was also a very good national security advisor. But uh, I, I've talked to him about this. How do you uh, both offer whatever you need to offer to to bring that American home and their family and the, the pressures that you're feeling to do that? But always keeping in mind that you don't want to make a, give people incentives to, uh, to take other Americans, uh, hostage. And, uh, so it's a very delicate art. Those who have done it, uh, another great, uh, hostage negotiator was the, the late Bill Richardson. Uh, who was uh, also uh, we 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 really owe a lot to people who do this because it's it's a tough job. Yeah, I think governor of New Mexico, if my memory serves right. me correctly, uh, recently passed away. Uh, and as you described a little while ago, one one of those rare political creatures that had friends on both, both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wonder if those days. Uh, I guess things go in cycles. Maybe that'll cycle back cycle back in. You were somebody who could talk across the aisle and we've we've lost a lot of the people who have. But I'll say this, the founding fathers gave us something really great. It's called federalism. And whenever I'm sometimes frustrated with, with DC, I think also about what's going on out in the States. I think about the fact that governors very often have to be able to talk across the aisles in their various states. Yeah. And I can often see that governors can cooperate across the aisles. So uh, we, have a, we have a remarkable system that the founding fathers uh, bequeathed to us. And uh, that's why I always think we're going to be OK. But I sure do wish that people um, try to keep the interests of the American people in mind. And that sometimes means talking across the aisle. I think we're going to be OK, too. I just I, I but I think we're going to be OK because because people um, on balance are good uh, and they care about one another. And sometimes uh, the loudest voices, uh, the most divisive voices are the ones that get the most amount of attention. And I, I have to keep reminding myself that that's not volume doesn't equate to size. Just just because they're they're loud doesn't mean that they're numerous. Um, yeah, I started with Jared Polis, who's the governor of Colorado and, and that, you know, yeah, it's a, probably a blue state, but he's still got to work with people. And, um, yeah, there's one other part of the world that fascinates me. That's the Middle East and Saudi Arabia has been in the news a little bit, I guess, because of live and, and maybe a little bit of flirtation with China, I guess. But then, you know, it looks like Israel is on the, is on the brink of maybe, maybe striking an accord with Saudi Arabia. How do you see that part of the world? 
Well, I really have to give credit um, uh, to uh, the Trump administration on on this, because uh, if you had said that you were going to have the Abraham Accords, uh, which has the Gulf Arabs, and I mean by that the UAE and uh, Kuwait and, and some other states like Morocco, and I still believe probably Saudi Arabia, uh, ending the state of war against Israel uh, so that the Middle East might actually be a place where uh, you can now uh, take a flight from Dubai to Tel Aviv. That's really uh, unthinkable. Even when I was secretary, as hard as I worked on Middle East peace, I would not have said that was going to happen. And so I didn't ever use the words optimism and Middle East in the same sentence, but I actually now think that uh, we could be more optimistic about a Middle East in which those things are taking place. There's still a lot of problems. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia, it's uh, it's complicated because we know that the human rights issues there are real. Uh, we we also know that uh, it's a place that's modernizing, where women are playing a different role. Um, I first went to Saudi Arabia in 1999. I was the director of the Chevron Corporation at the time. And they actually asked the chairman of Chevron, would I want to attend the meetings? And oh he Lord. said that he was quite sure I would want to attend <laughs> the meetings. Oh Every morning, I had to be escorted from my hotel room by a managing director of Chevron. And then escorted back at night because a woman couldn't be alone without a male escort. So it's not that this is a place that's moving as we would want it to move, but it is moving. And I think the Middle East is moving. And so um, it's a time to try to double down on that and see if we can uh, finally end that state of war. And um, Israel uh, can finally have its rightful place um, in the Middle East, because it's always been the most extraordinary place. Um, it, it, But for the the creativity and the perseverance uh, of the Israeli people, uh, Israel would have ceased to exist. But quite to the contrary, it's built uh, a, an economic powerhouse. It's a democracy. So um, I hope that we finally reach the place that it's it's going to be fully recognized in the Middle East. Yeah, my bucket list is was to play some golf courses. My wife's bucket list was to go to the Holy Land. And she went last summer. And you and to your point, to see from an agricultural standpoint what Israel has done in the middle of the desert. Um all right, I'm gonna, I promise you I was gonna be a good steward of your time and I am, but I you you mentioned maybe a society trending um albeit maybe not at our pace in a good direction. Afghanistan it seems like women are are going in the opposite direction and and i think of the 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 time the treasure spent in that country um and i just I'm, my heart breaks quite frankly for women that are still in afghanistan and i i don't know the answer there and and it's unfair for me to ask you but when you look at afghanistan i'm sure that you too. Your heart is also broken for what the people are going through. Is there something that could and should be done there that is not being done? Well, let's start by acknowledging our obligation to the people of Afghanistan. Um, I was 
sick on the day that we withdrew. I mean, I just could could barely stand it because uh, actually Afghanistan wasn't our longest war. Our longest war is actually Korea, where we've been in an armistice for more than uh, 70 years and where I think anybody would say that you wouldn't trade the stability that we've had there. And we've still got uh, tens of thousands of American forces there. And uh, we have helped that country transform into a democracy. And we could have done that in Afghanistan at very low cost, not to mention keeping uh, assets like the Bagram uh, Air Base uh, uh, in a country with a border that has 900 kilometers with Iran, the most troubling country in the Middle East. So I just have to say it was a huge mistake the way that we left and that we left. But now we've left. So our obligation now is to uh, continue to make sure that we can get as many Afghans out who uh, worked with us and who served with uh, us, who translated for American soldiers, who believed in us. And then to the women of Afghanistan, we've just got to keep putting pressure as much as we can on the Taliban uh, to to at least give women some freedoms uh, to go to school. You know, Trey, when, when we went into Afghanistan, girls weren't going to school. Uh, now women were serving in government posts. They were going to university. We've somehow got to put pressure. And I don't hear enough uh, from the administration to highlight what is going on for women in Afghanistan. Take it to the UN. Embarrass the Taliban about what they're doing about women. Uh, where is that campaign? You know, there are so many things that America is known for its power of economy, of military, but our compassion is a big part of who we are, too. Um, I was recently at uh, the 20th anniversary of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, uh, which I was fortunate to be a part of. But not just me, every administration from the Bush administration on sustained that that program that saved 25 million lives in Africa. And it's up for reauthorization, by the way. And I would just say to to folks in Congress, remember American compassion. The line that we used was from those to whom much is given, much is expected. I'm a minister's daughter. (laughs) That means something to me. And so I hope that uh, when we look at PEPFAR, when we look at what we try to do for women in Afghanistan, what we stand for in terms of religious freedom around the world, even in places like Saudi Arabia, we should be talking to them. If you really want to be a modern state, you have to recognize religious freedom. And so um, I, I always loved representing the United States of America and having all that power behind me when I stepped off that airplane. But the other thing that I had going for me was that we are a compassionate country and uh, people understand that. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. Well, I can't think of anyone. I really cannot think of anyone who left public service um, more respected or better liked. And those are two different things. But when I shared with people that I was going to have the pleasure of talking to you, it, it is just it's a reaction that I don't get when I share other names with them. So I, so I you left at the height, I, whether you come back or not. I don't know. You left <laughs> you, you left at the height. I, I do two things before I let you go. Is there a book that changed your life and you can't say the Bible? 
Is there a book that changed your life that you would recommend? And is there anything you wanted to do that you have not yet done? On the books, I'm I'm going to mention two. Uh, one, because it's pretty thick. But if, if anybody wants to understand what the Russians are and who they are, the Russian people, not Vladimir Putin. There's a book by the a, a great historian who was also the Library of Congress. His name's Jim Billington. It was called The Icon and the Axe. Now, it's tough going, I'm going to admit. But if you want to understand Russia, please read it. And then there was a book by a band named Hans Morgenthau called Power Among Nations uh, that I read early on as a as a graduate student. And I remember thinking that you have to understand that it is a power game. But my reaction against Morgenthau came later when I started realizing that power is one thing. Uh, power without principle is quite another. And so I tried always to keep in mind as uh, as American Secretary of State that Morgan that was right about power among nations, but that America also uh, had to lead from from principle. Anything, I mean, I, I, I could have spent the whole 30 minutes on your resume. I gave short shrift to it because I wanted to ask you about other things. But is there, I mean, your name was discussed for presidential politics, vice president. I mean, is there anything... Any job, commissioner of the NFL, head of the USGA, is there anything left that you sit there and lay awake at night and think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be a failure unless I do that? Well, I'm awfully fortunate in that um, I've had a chance to do some remarkable things. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that I am now is I'm actually a a limited owner in the Denver Broncos. So I I could say that one thing that I'm really hoping is that I'll get to stand there with the Lombardi trophy (laughs) one day in the near future. Uh, But I I never think about uh, the things that I wish I had done because I've gotten to do so much. And I'm so grateful for what I've gotten to do. And uh, I go right back to my parents, uh, Trey. You know, as a little girl growing up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama, uh, my story is pretty improbable. But um, that little community uh, had uh, a mantra. It was faith, family and education. And so the one thing that I hope I can really help deliver on is the thing that I think is key to the proper functioning of our democracy. I worry a lot about uh, educational opportunity for particularly the poorest of our kids. And if over the next uh, years, however many more I have in my career, I can keep sounding that alarm uh, about education and keep trying to contribute uh, to the idea that this country was built on opportunity, but opportunity is an empty word without access to education. That's what I'll keep trying to do. Um, the only other thing I would say is um, good luck to the Gamecocks this year. <laughs> well, we have we have Georgia Saturday, so it may. <laughs> I we, know that. I know that. <laughs> we trade, need divine but, uh, intervention, but. I'll tell you what, our coach is one of the nicest, Shane Beamer is one of the nicest human beings on the face of the earth, but we are, we are, we are David going 
in front of Goliath or Daniel in the lion's den. You, you're the preacher's kid, not me. I'm going to get those wrong. I think Daniel went in the lion's den and David fought Goliath, I think. That's correct. That's, that's, you got that right. Yeah. In honor of your parents, give us, give us your parents' name and we will close today in honor of them instilling a love of education in their daughter. That's right. Angelina Ray Rice, a teacher. John Wesley Rice, Jr., a Presbyterian minister, high school guide counselor, and later on, university administrator. They gave me uh, the legacy of being an educator. And in all of the jobs that I've had, all of the things that I've been fortunate to do, I still think of myself first and foremost as a teacher. And that's what I love doing. Well, if you want to change the world, teach. Uh, and you have. Dr. Condoleezza Rice, thank you so much for joining us. It has been such a pleasure talking to you. I hope your golf game uh, continues to trend in the direction that you want it to. And as long as Denver doesn't play Dallas, I wish y'all all the luck this upcoming NFL season. Great to be with you, Trey. Take care. Yes, ma'am. And thank you all for listening. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.